As Mormons, one of the things we constantly get beat over the head with by pseudo-intellectuals is this argument. Well, if the Book of Mormon is an actual account of historical events, certainly we should be able to find evidences. Now, if you'll excuse me, me and Muffy need to get back to reading this inspired piece of holy writ known as the CES letter. Well, today, you're going to get some facts and figures you can use to defend the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Ken Peterson joins me again, where we will break down the evidences in support of the historicity of the Book of Mormon using these five disciplines. Those are 1. Archaeology, 2. Linguistics, 3. Geographical, 4. Geological, and finally 5th Cultural. Now you may not agree with where Ken believes the Book of Mormon took place, but as Ken and I break down evidences from all five of these categories, I think you'll see that as believers in the Book of Mormon, we have every reason to be assured that the accounts in the Book of Mormon happened just like it says it did. And that's next on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Because of your generosity last year, I was able to buy better audio equipment and software. I can't tell you how much it meant to me that not only did you spend your time here with me on the podcast, but also that you found enough value in what I'm doing that you donated the podcast to upgrade it. This year, I want to continue to grow. Now, I want to add video to the podcast to continue to help you, my guests, and myself connect better through the show. The other feature I'm working on for this podcast is something I have to remain vague about for now. But what I can say is that it's something that will help us better connect as fundamentalists and traditional LDS folks. Now, to get that equipment for the video content I want to do and to build the infrastructure for the other project with this podcast, donations would certainly be welcome. Or you can go to mormonrenegade.com, click that supply store button, and get some new swag. New stuff will be out soon as well. Now, if you can't afford to do either of those two things, I totally get it. Maybe just keep the podcast in your prayers that we'll be blessed with those resources. Again, thank you for everything you do as well as for listening to the podcast. One more quick announcement here. I have videos up at YouTube. This year I plan on doing a whole lot more with video. Now, I haven't gotten a strike yet with YouTube, but to be honest with you, I feel like I'm kind of overdue. So in an effort to be one step ahead of YouTube, I'm going to start posting on Rumble as well. So for those of you, my listeners, who prefer video, I'd ask that you head on over to Rumble and look up the Mormon Renegade podcast channel and crush that like and subscribe button. And keep your eyes peeled for new video content. Thanks. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Ken, I, dude, I love our conversations. I'm so glad you always are so willing to come on because they're just fascinating. I mean, you put in so much work into this stuff, and I'm just glad you're here, man. Well, I have to say, visiting with you even over zoom i in person it'd probably be out of control but we i don't know i, I feel a real intellectual kinship with you yeah, similar questions and similar avenues and and i'm always pleasantly surprised by the your awareness of certain things and i can't wait to embark on uh, our conversation tonight i've been looking forward to this ever since you mentioned it 
Yeah. So when, when we talked last night, I mean, not last night, but when we talked the last time after our previous conversation, uh, we just kind of left it hanging. I, I, you know, we told everyone, Hey, you're coming back on, but we didn't go into great detail about what it was we were going to talk about. And I'm glad I did because if there's one thing I figured out in doing this podcast, if I tip my hand too early, I can count on somebody else coming back out. And so I would, we would essentially be on defense. So I kind of kept this one close to the vest for a reason. And I feel like what what you're going to be presenting here is so, so important. Because right now, one of the main ways that the gospel gets attacked is, is two things. They attack the founding leadership of, of the restored gospel, whether that's Joseph or Brigham or John Taylor or Wilford Woodruff, whatever the case is, or they attack the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's that's their big push. And so when you and I talked off air last time, we talked about uh, a presentation, I guess, that you had on the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Right. And with the CES letter out, and that's done untold damage to folks. I mean, I've met more than one family who just feel devastated by this fact that you have this letter that's put out Mm -hmm. and uh, basically it's a letter that's addressed to a member of CES, Church Educational System, which just goes down this list of grievances. Yeah. He revisits it. He puts a lot in. So as you and I talk about the historicity of the Book of Mormon tonight, I'm super excited because my hope is, is that this gets passed around to some folks that maybe have had their testimonies damaged a little bit, whether by the CES letter or whatever else it might be. So, yeah, yeah I'm super excited for this, Ken. Well, the whole thing, uh, the the short list of my favorite evidences for the historicity of the Book of Mormon started as the result of an online conversation with now a fairly well-known ex-Mormon, I won't say who it is, who it's become fashionable for the intellectual or pseudo-intellectual Latter-day Saints to say, we just need to admit that the Book of Mormon is not historical, you know, and it, you know, that that seems to be uh, one of the war cries of the progressive Mormon movement. As I read that, I was dumbfounded. I, in my experience and in my life, there has never been more evidence and more reason to believe in the historicity of the Book of Mormon than we have now, especially within the last four years with the advent of LIDAR. We're going to talk about that. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And and look, I don't care if someone espouses a heartland model. I don't care if someone espouses a Mesoamerican model. I don't care, right? That's, that's one of those things where, again, it's that's kind of an internal debate, right? I don't care. That's a it debate. is. On that's, the other hand, it does have a lot to do with what we're going to discuss tonight. So, I, and so I'm going to put that out there. Okay. <laughs> it no. won't dominate the discussion. But it is a part in terms of the evidences and where they're located, especially in relationship to their their geographical relationship. It is kind of important. Okay. Although, I mean, 
there are evidences, I, I would admit, in, in both Heartland and the Mesoamerica model. But <clears throat> we'll get into that. But to give you an idea, at the uh, first part, around 2001, Dr. John Clark of the New World Archaeological Foundation compiled a list of 60 items mentioned in the Book of Mormon. The list includes items like steel, swords, barley, cement, thrones, literacy, etc. A dozen years after the Book of Mormon was printed, so we're talking about 1840, 42, right? Only 13% of those 60 items, uh, eight of them could be confirmed archaeologically. So when the Book of Mormon was published, 13% of it could be confirmed, right, of those items. Back it. At the, at the turn of the 21st century, year 2000-ish, 45 of those 60 items have now been confirmed Ooh. by uh, archaeological evidence. That's 75%. Now look at what has happened within the last 23 years, particularly with the advent of LIDAR. I, I would like to see that study done again. I don't know that it hasn't been. I, But I... I Ken Peterson would estimate that those 40 items are now close to 50 items. Uh, we're approaching 90% confirmation. But you see, the, the trend of confirming the claims of the, the historical claims of the Book of Mormon is only getting better and better and better. Why would that trend reverse at this point? Right. I mean, at a certain point, you have to say uh, he knew something. Sure. He knew a lot of things he shouldn't. And in such detail, which we'll talk about anyway. Yeah. And and I feel like, so as a guy who's a convert to Mormonism, period, I'll say this. If it didn't happen, like it said, then what am I, then what am I doing? Right? Right. We if should it, know. We should know. Because the, the thing is, is that it, if it didn't happen, I'm I'm staying home on the couch and eating Doritos and, <laughs> yes. and really diving deep into into fantasy football, right? Because <laughs> because you know, uh, don't get me wrong, the gospel brings me joy, but one of the reasons it brings me joy is because I know it's true, right? Yes, and yes, so, yes, yes, yes. And so while it, and that's why I, I respect folks like Hannah Stoddard and um and and you know, people who come up with these models, whether it's Mesoamerican or Heartland, because if it did happen, we should find evidence. And so when when folks like yourself, Meldrum, folks who espouse the Mesoamerican model, Hannah Stoddard, they come out and said, no, this really happens, and they present evidence, yeah. that's good. That's <clears throat> evidence we should have. That's evidence that we absolutely should have. Because there's guys like you and I, and, and we talked about this on our first, first podcast, where guys like you and I, why we receive spiritual confirmations, we're also big on the cerebral end of things, right? Right. We, we like to know. Yeah. And so the fact that they're out there is just fantastic. And there are thousands of them, not even not even talking about them as individual items, and, and I, I can't stress this enough, and I want people to know nearly everything you and I are going to discuss tonight is found online. And a, uh, the uh, John Welch, who was the discoverer of chiasmus on his mission in the 60s, 
which we'll talk about too. He spearheaded this effort to make all of these evidences available free online for the whole world to see. Book of Mormon Central dot org. Evidence Central dot org. And then when we talk about Book of Abraham stuff, there's Pearl of Great Price Central dot org. When you compile each of those entries and put them together, it numbers over a thousand. Right. And it continues to the database grows day by day. Well, so I mean, even yes, go ahead. If I'm not mistaken, it grew just in the last few months, right? Because all of a sudden, one of the CES letters' major critic criticisms was there were no horses here, and <laughs> in during that, that time. And then, what do scientists discover? You know, uh, you know, I, I don't know how long the CES, CES letter has been out now. I want to say the better part of a decade. Yeah. But in just that short time, what what do archaeologists discover? Horses in that area during that time period uh, i agree now the crazy thing is if you look on wikipedia and you look at a uh, uh, book of mormon anachronisms they will still list all of those things because they're behind the science they're behind the science and even if you google it doesn't even have to be an lds website if you google pre-columbian horses in america you will see non-lds scholars uh, displaying how this tide has turned there is clear evidence of pre-Columbian horses in the Americas. So and, it's not a question of if anymore. It's a question of how late. Right. Or were they here even when Columbus arrived? Right. And, his and, and <clears throat> what I find fascinating is that we as believers are expected to answer every criticism that comes forward. Yeah. But when and a discovery I, like I have that, fun trying to do that. I, I enjoy that. I really do. I know, but but uh, the dichotomy is is that when something comes out in favor of it, it's quiet, right? Nobody wants to say anything. Hey, good job, good job, Harmons. Congratulations, right? <laughs> Every, everyone's like, well, it, it probably isn't what we think it is, or you know, they're just real quiet about it. Ken, they don't. Yeah, they but don't I, talk I, about it. I could put myself in their shoes. Mm -hmm. I mean, if 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 I were an atheist and i'm of the mentality that without the evidences that that we're discussing and have discussed i might be and I'm, I'm that i'm so innately skeptical that's kind of where i where i would land uh, naturally sure so if someone were to show me proof positive that an angel named moroni appeared to a 14 year old boy called him to be a prophet and they we're all destined for exaltation or immortality. And this world is going to be a terrestrial world in a few years. I, if that, that would be a paradigm shift that I don't think I could. It's just, it's a, a bridge too far. I mean, there's that leap of faith to take it. We've talked about before. It's the craziest story ever told. It is. It's look, if you didn't receive a testimony of it for yourself, it's a bat crap crazy story. Pardon the expression, right? <laughs> it's true. So I, I understand that. I understand the silence. But yeah. just as I was going over my notes for our discussion tonight, and my, my skeptical mind has not gone away. It's still there. And, you know, you go through life and you're working and you're 
your mind and your feelings become callous and you keep thinking, man, this really is crazy. I go over these notes again and all these items one by one and my mind is reeling like it really, it really, it's true. Joseph Smith told the truth. What are you going to do about it? And each time I go through these things, each time I learn something new, the wonder of it is still fresh on me because of my natural skeptic mind. Yeah. And I don't understand. Even as recently as yesterday, I was having one of these discussions with a detractor on my Facebook uh, or my Dark and the Apocrypha page. And when you present them, he was apparently a trial attorney is what he said. And I presented him with, you know, these three pages of links and evidences. And he says, it's all baloney. And I said, well, clearly you didn't read the evidence. Right. Yeah, I did, but it's still baloney. And my response is, well, if you read the evidence and you reject it just because it happens to be collected on an LDS oriented website, that makes you prejudiced. Yep. A religious bigot. Because here's what John Welch and the Book of Mormon Central people really want, because he's he's an academic, he's an attorney, he's not dumb. He knows the demands and the rigors of scholarship. They made these websites scholarly. So when you look up, they call them note-wise to make them more approachable. But if you look at the footnotes, they are all meticulously footnoted, citing uh, top-notch scholars of the day not predominantly lds scholars yes you will find lds scholars in there as we should as you would expect but most of them are not who have no bias for or against the book of mormon right the evidences are there and so my question is you've read the evidences and and i've challenged all of the what refute the evidence as i post let's talk about the evidence let's go back and forth they won't engage they just go into denial. Well, it's because you know it's a Mormon website, and you're all stupid, and you're all crackpots. Why don't we talk about the evidence? You know, right? Yeah, and and I uh, I'll share a story here. So when I was in Maryland, uh, we did we subbed out to I won't name the organization because I don't want any yeah any links back to them because this would would hurt his career but we would go out and uh if they were doing a dig we would go out and map the dig right so if yep. they found old potter, pottery shards or whatever right we would go out there and, sh- and take measurements and show them where it is on the ground and they, we'd make a map out of that and, and they would make adjustments and whatnot but I remember something that he told me that was very interesting. I asked this archaeologist, I said, what's the most frustrating part of your job? Because I was fascinated. I was like, man, you get to be Indiana Jones, yeah. right? I <laughs> mean, you got you yeah. got some stuff going on. And uh, he's like, let me tell you my biggest frustration. He said, my biggest frustration is the fact that we put together a narrative for all of human history in 100 years. And right. we're using we're using the same models that we used in eighteen fifty something. Yep. And we're discovering that a lot of these assumptions are now blatantly wrong. Welcome to the world of science. But that's not the frustrating part. The frustrating part is getting those in that are the gatekeepers within that community 
right to revisit and re-examine <laughs> what they held as gospel so to speak yeah because it, they feel like it's a threat for some reason and and so when when we start talking about book of mormon archaeology and the evidences i think we have to to come to a conclusion pretty quickly that at least how it sits right now i don't think modern day academia for the most part is going to come around to any evidence we would put forward right <laughs> now, well especially if we put it forward as evidence for the book of mormon they're going to reject it out of hand exactly. which is why i'm i'm not inclined to do that Here's the evidence. Let's not talk about the Book of Mormon. Let's just let's talk about this evidence. Yeah. Right. No, that's good. So what do you got? Well, in the process of this discussion, I grouped these evidences into five different groups. And I'm going to let you pick whatever you want. They're geographical evidences, geological evidences, which I think, in your, especially considering your background, you will uh, die when you under, uh, read some of those cultural evidences linguistic evidences of the of the text of the book mormon itself is evidentiary and archaeological evidences oh. but let, let's start with the most recent archaeological one just because it's amazing amazing <clears throat> in 2018 um the national geographic broke a story about the very first large-scale LIDAR um, investigation of the Mirador area of the Yucatan Peninsula. Before you go go too much farther, let me explain to those who may not know what LIDAR is. I use LIDAR. Yes. LIDAR, typically, you can hook it to a plane or even a drone. Yep. And it, it almost looks like a camera, and it mounts to the bottom. And what it does is that it sends out essentially what are infrared lasers, which can penetrate a tree canopy. Um, there's software where you can remove that canopy. I've worked with it some, and I'm just fascinated by it. So this gives an archaeologist or whoever's running the drone or the plane the opportunity to see what lays beneath tree cover. So yep. in the case of South America or Central America, you get to strip away all of that without actually having to go cut down trees or chop. Which them. is all there is there. Yep. I mean, the growth is so thick, you can't see anything. Right. Yep. yep. And and if you look at a lot of those old um, pictures of when they were just discovering some of those um, uh, old buildings and whatnot, they look just like hills because over time, dirt gets on them. And so those step period pyramids will look just like hills. Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. So they conducted this first large scale in the Mirador Basin of northern Guatemala, which is on the border of southern Mexico. <clears throat> the surveyed area is less than half the size of Utah County, to give us an idea. Wow. And I remember watching this on the National Geographic special. And they had these three expert Mayan archaeologists who were and they they did it for a shock effect. They had these giant screen TVs the size of a wall, and they were flashing these lidar images in front of these archaeologists for the first time, and they were speechless, speechless at what they saw. They could not believe it. Word and they would say things like, "This changes everything, everything." So I'll describe it why. At any rate. Um, 
the Book of Mormon uh, in uh, Mosiah 27, 6, and the people began to be very numerous and began to scatter abroad upon the face of the earth. Um, and it goes on. Uh, the whole face of the land had become covered with buildings, according to the Book of Mormon again, Mosiah 27. And the people were as numerous almost as it were the sand of the sea. That's from Mormon chapter 1, verse 7. <clears throat> how, how many people is that? Millions, right? Yeah. Um, what they discovered in the Mirador Basin, where they were, they the, the central plaza they had excavated and cleared, and they were estimating the population of the region to be in the tens of thousands. What LIDAR showed them. Uh, where was that? Where? Oh, where'd that go? Sixty thousand, sixty thousand new buildings, sixty thousand structures, buildings that they had no idea were there. We're talking massive suburbs to that central plaza. Wow. Leading the experts to new population estimates as high as 15 to 20 million. 15 to 20 million people in the lowland Maya during the classic period. And for reference, uh, for the years, where'd that go? The classic period would be around AD 250 to AD 600, which wow. is in line with the end of the Nephite civilization. <clears throat> and the Nephite civilization was only a small part of what was there, the Lamanite populations and the pre-existent populations that were there before Lehi and his family ever got there. Right. Which were, uh, you know, we... we um, I, I can only think of the old man, the Jaredites, right? The right. Jaredites arrived a millennia and a half before Lehi. They've been there thousands of years. Right. And they probably sped, spread throughout the entire American continent, north and south, right? So, yeah, lots and lots and lots of people. Now, the other thing they discovered, not to, well, and it caused them to say during that period of time in history, it is now calculated that that area was the largest city on the planet in the New World. You can believe that. <clears throat> so the other thing they discovered, the Book of Mormon says that Moroni had fortified or built forts for, of security for every city in all the land round about. Alma 49. And the Lamanites are at war with one another and the whole face of this land is one continual round of murder and bloodshed. That's Mormon 8. And this is what they found. <clears throat> Researchers were particularly surprised by the ubiquity of defensive walls, ramparts, terraces, and fortresses everywhere. Leading to surprising insights into the militarization in the Maya lowlands. Hmm. Impressive chronological correlation between widespread fortifications, the Malaya Lowlands, and the Book of Mormon. Endemic warfare over centuries was the norm 
and warfare was particularly prevalent in the early classic AD 250 to 500. <laughs> right? Interesting time period, consistent with the timing of the final wars of the Nephites and continued warfare thereafter among the Lamanites. Brant Gardner, uh, uh, LDS scholar, pointed out that, oh, I can't remember, Teotihuacan was trying to create um, trade routes with the uh, with the Maya on the Yucatan. And who who was right in the middle of that? Well, according to the Mesoamerican theory, the poor Nephites. And that's yeah. why they were run down because they were in the way of this um, Native American trade route. <clears throat> you know, and we've we've discovered now that there is copper that was found down in South America that was mined up by the Great Lakes area, right? Yeah. So yeah. you have this massive trading network that's going on. Yeah. These are not these are not people who as as you know 19th century America would would have you believe are savages, right? These are people But that's who, all they knew. Right. 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 That's, when the that's... when the colonists got here, while all they knew were the Northern Plains Native American tribes, which were not advanced when they got here. Right. So exactly. the concept of metal plates, cement, trade routes, highways, temples was laughable. Right. We need to underscore that was laughable at Joseph Smith's time. Yep. Yep. So, absolutely. The third thing that astounded them, the Book of Mormon in 3 Nephi 6, it says, and there were many highways cast up and many roads made. Highways? <laughs> Native Americans were not building highways, right? These 3D scans, the LIDAR scans, revealed sophisticated Mayan infrastructure at a never-before-seen level. The Mesoamerican jungle now reveals a vast network of highways and roads elevated so that they functioned even in the rainy season. Highways cast up. We now know that the Maya had a well-developed infrastructure that provided public works such as dams, ditches, irrigation systems, reservoirs, and stone quarries. Mormon similarly describes the construction of highways and road systems and other public works such as dikes and irrigation systems and stone masonry. Amazing. Absolutely. All confirmed. Well, then, and then, of course, and then the Book of Mormon talks about flocks and herds and all of this irrigation. You didn't see that amongst the Plains Native Americans. You didn't see that. Uh, Alma 129, an abundance of flocks and herds and fatlings of every kind. Helam and six, they did raise grain in great abundance. And they did raise many flocks and herds and many fat uh, fatlings. The LIDAR technology has uncovered the remains of animal pens and reveals that food production was at an industrial scale. Could you imagine to feed 15 to 20 million people? They, right. weren't, hunters, they weren't hunters and gatherers. They were growing. So the Book of Mormon similarly talks about uh, the vast production of food and domestication of animals. So all of this that we've just discussed was since 2018. Just last week, they did another LIDAR survey in Northern Guatemala. Same exact findings. Untold, unpreviously unknown structures showing a far greater civilization than they had ever before imagined. And I imagine it will continue every time they point their LIDAR someplace else. It'll be the same thing. Amazing. Yeah, and for some reason as people, we, we want to be able to wrap up history in, in 10 minutes, right? We want to be able sure. to say, 
we've seen everything there is to see. We we we've come up with our conclusions, and this is what it is. And unfortunately, that's just not the way history works, right? I mean, no. every day things are overturned or should be overturned, but yeah. it's getting getting that to happen that that seems to be the issue. So let me ask you this: In any of those cities down there? Have they discovered anything that could be uniquely um, pinpointed back to a, a, a gospel use, if you will, temples, that sort of thing? Well, yeah. Um, let's talk about. Well, here's when in the the Book of Mormon in the uh, Jacob five is the Zenus allegory of the olive tree which goes on and on and on Mm -hmm. and talks at length about olive culture which no one in joseph smith's circle of friends had had any knowledge of i mean no one in the new world was growing olive groves right and what we discover is what he was describing and how they tended their olive groves and how they cared for them and pruned them is exactly right how Hmm. could he possibly known of olive culture but okay, that's not something they found. That was not answering your question. Um, ancient American consumption of alcohol. It talks about the Lamanites getting drunk, right? And every, everybody laughed at that. They didn't have any alcohol. That is not true. They had all forms of alcohol, including wine and grapes. We now discover uh, ancient American monetary systems. They talk about currency they had a currency they had weights and measures we need to be very careful because the book of mormon never says coins right Right. because of our presentism and where we're coming from we're expecting nickels and dimes but they had metal money some in the form of axe in the shape of axes and things like that but they did have that in mesoamerica it was clearly identified um so yeah and temples Towers, all that sort of. Let me go the second year. I've I've looked at at some of those scans, and the thing that keeps popping back out to me is you can tell that, and a lot of the time when those were constructed, those people were at war. Yeah, those people were at war. Whoever was constructing those cities. War and fortifications were forefront in their mind. And all you need to do is look at the Alma chapters where it talks about building up, you know, fortifications. And well, they and talk about continuous warfare. Yep, exactly. And I don't know why we should be surprised. The old world is full of, I mean, just look at the Old Testament. Can you imagine one neighboring city overrunning another just because they want their stuff or because they desperately need it because they're starving? I mean, we don't comprehend that. No, no. Our biggest crisis is when our cell phone doesn't charge. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, barley. The Book of Mormon mentions that, that they had barley and that they were cultivating barley. Everybody knows that's not native to the, you know, and it's, it doesn't grow wild. It has to be cultivated. Well, guess what? We've discovered that there was barley in those ancient cultures. So... Uh... So let me ask you this. Have we seen where about the time period that barley was introduced to the region? Because that 
that would be kind of a smoking gun, right? I mean, if Barley is introduced about the time that the Nephites are are theoretically showing up. In well, the, all of this, I have to say, all of this stuff coincides with the, um, with uh, the, the time Nephite period. era, 600 BC to 400 AD. It's all there. That classic, the classic Maya period, that's when all of this is happening. It's when all the activity is really going up. Um, just going to look up the uh, the barley link here. Uh, I'll read it to you. There are actually three ta- three types of wild barley native to the Americas. Um, it wasn't until 1983 that they first uncovered a domesticated form of barley native to the Americas in Arizona in a pre-Columbian context, 8,900. Little barley. Um, It has since been found throughout the Mississippi River Valley, where it was a major staple during the middle uh, AD 200 to Hmm. 8,500. It has also been found dating to as early as 800 BC in Iowa. Go Heartlanders, right? So that's extraordinary. That, that, uh, that's one of those things where, like, you, you want to say it, it doesn't, sh- and, and keep in mind, I mean, carbon dating isn't exactly exact all the time. Right. right we right. know that there's some fluctuation there. Sure. So if you say between 680 uh, BC and 400 AD, and you're coming up with 200 years later, that oh, in a lot of times is well within that range of yes. error, 200 yep. years. Yep. And so if you can't find any barley older than that, and then all of a sudden you got it from down in Central America to Arizona to the Mississippi, you know, uh, Valley. That's, that's a, that's a huge piece of circumstantial evidence. Oh yeah. Well, and all of this is circumstantial. I mean, sure. welcome to the world of history and people get upset. Well, that's just circumstance. That's not evidence. And the smoking gun is circumstantial evidence, right? Are, are people looking for Nephi was here kind of a thing. And it's, it's an unfair and kind of an ignorant thing to expect that particularly in mesoamerica those tropical humid climates organic remains <laughs> highland and mountainous areas undergo erosion decreasing the chance of remains being preserved in the mesoamerica consists of many highland areas additionally the area is mostly humid especially in its southern extent with subtropical to tropical conditions in this area such as this animal and plant remains quickly decompose and are destroyed without leaving a trace. Even if an organism is buried before it decomposes, the commonly acidic soils continue the rapid process of decomposition. Also, the generally abundant vegetation in such a region, very limited areas of exposed ground exist where bones or teeth might be observed. Because of this combination of factors, a significant record of past life in Mesoamerica would be very difficult to uncover. As archeologists, as well as paleontologists have discovered, most animal remains are not preserved and are lost for all time animal slash human remains so it's why are we not finding the barley in mesoamerica well it's decomposed at this point 
And and you bring up a valid point. As a guy who who was made his living outside for yeah. the bulk of my career in very in a lot of different climates. I've yeah. been I've surveyed in Florida, I've surveyed on the east coast of, of the United States, I've surveyed out west. There is a different rate at which things decompose in yep. the west versus the 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 east, right? Yep. Oh in yeah. The west, I, I mean, it's not common. You're out there maybe doing a survey for a rancher, and you you will see a, a cow that's been dead for a year or better that still yeah. has the hide on it. You yeah. know, not not all the hide, but and and the bones have been bleached a little bit. But if something like that happens in a high humidity climate, if if an animal yeah. dies, it'll decompose the bones. Yeah. Quickly. It's, oh yeah. They don't yeah. just hang out. I mean, you think of that. The Mirador base and LIDAR, I mean, there were as many as 20 million people there. Where are all the bones? They're gone. Right. They're gone. Millions right. gone. So it's an unfair expectation, kind of an ignorant expectation that we should be finding those types of evidences in such a climate. But um, metallurgy. Uh, <clears throat> we talk about the gold plates. And people make a straw man argument saying, well, if the gold plates were gold, it would have been too heavy for a single person to lift. And at Sandra Tanner's museum in Salt Lake City, she has uh, something about the size of the Book of Mormon made out of lead. So people can see how impossible that is. The straw man argument is that they were made of 14 karat gold, which no one ever claimed. They had the appearance of gold. 14 karat gold is too heavy and it's too soft. It wouldn't have worked. What has been discovered in Mesoamerica in abundance is a uh, what is now referred to as tumbaga, which is a gold-copper alloy, which hmm. has the appearance of gold, but is much lighter and is much stiffer and significantly lighter. Wow. So it would make sense that, I mean, uh, the Nephites, if they were real, I mean, they're not stupid. They're, gonna make, they're not going to make records out of things that can't happen. They're going to crumple right. if you drop them all. So uh, the thinking is, yeah, I mean, they did have significant knowledge of metallurgy, among other things. So one of my other favorites <clears throat> is uh, cement that's mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, here you go. <clears throat> because everybody knows the Native Americans weren't building with cement. They were living in teepees, right? Cement, that's ridiculous. Um, in the mid-first century B.C., Mormon reported that some Nephite descenders did travel into the land northward, where they found large bodies of water, many rivers, Helaman chapter 3. But there was little timber, so they became exceedingly expert in the working of cement and built houses out of cement and even built many cities, both of wood and of cement. And, of course... Uh, people laughed at the Book of Mormon and at Joseph Smith for making such claims. However, according to Mayan experts, Michael Coe, Stephen Houston, non-LDS. In fact, Michael Coe has some anti-LDS treat to him. It was not until the late pre-classic period, 300 BC to AD 2250, that the Maya quickly realized the structural value of a concrete-like fill made from limestone rubble and lime-rich mud. This led to an explosion of activity around 100 BC. What? That's exactly right. what Mormon was talking about. 
And one area where the cement was used extensively was in the city of Teotihuacan in central Mexico, which some Book of Mormon scholars consider to be the land northward. Wow. So that's crazy. <clears throat> All right. But I did, you know what? Probably the greatest Mesoamerican bullseye. <clears throat> we could spend a lot of time on this. but <clears throat> In the Book of Mormon, when, when we come to Third Nephi, after the great destructions in the year 30 AD, the voice of the Lord tells the people about the cities that were destroyed and how they were destroyed. And he mentioned 17 cities and specifically how they were destroyed. One city in particular, Jerusalem, which is located, the Book of Mormon tells us, on the shores of the waters of Mormon was sunken, was swallowed up by the waters. <laughs> Those who uh, commit to this John Sorensen model, Mesoamerican model, believe that the waters of Mormon is Lake Atitlan in northern Guatemala. Okay. 50 feet below the waves of Lake Atitlan is an ancient Mayan city. It was wow. submerged about that time. Wow. <laughs> and again, it's one thing if it was one, right? If Joseph Smith got lucky on one. Exactly. If he got lucky on two. If he got lucky on three. But when you start approaching, as you pointed out earlier, those 60 things that archaeologists thought you could find, and you're approaching 90%, He's a pretty good guesser, right? At that point, you got to start saying, maybe he wasn't guessing. Maybe See, and that's, that's maybe the point where my skeptical mind finally gives up. Right. And says, oh, my goodness, he, he was telling the truth. I mean, one of my favorite ones is elephants. Right. I mean, that was the most laughable thing of all. Everybody knows there aren't any elephants in the Americas. Joseph Smith, you idiot. We now know that there absolutely were elephants, a mastodon of some sort, that existed. And in, in the 1950s, an article published in the Scientific American. I got to quote that one because it's pretty cool. Uh, oh, here we go. <laughs> <clears throat> Ludwell Johnson, in an article entitled Men and Elephants in America, published in Scientific Monthly, wrote that, quote, discoveries of associations of human and elephantine remains are by no means uncommon. As of 1950, McCowan listed no less than 27 such items, including a partly burned mastodon skeleton and numerous potsherds in Ecuador. Wow. And the elephants weren't burning themselves with pot shirts, right? No, no, <laughs> no. He goes on to explain that there can no longer be any doubt that man and elephant coexisted in America. It is safe to say that American elephants have been extinct for a minimum of 3,000 years. You go back 3,000 years from 1952, 56, I don't remember. Guess what? You're at the end of the, you're at the end of the Jaredite era. Where are elephants mentioned? 
in the book of ether. Ding dong. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it'll never cease to amaze me that despite all the evidence, people still want to put the brakes on it, right? Like, oh, no, that can't be right. Well, of course, because then you have to admit that those crazy Mormons might be onto something. And then what does that mean for me? You know, I mean, who wants to admit that? Right. Especially if you don't like being a Mormon. You don't right. like Mormon. You have something against them. You don't want, you don't want that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, but there's this feeling that if, or at least for me, right, there's this feeling that if you start looking at, at the evidence unbiasedly, if you just say, okay, what, what does, what's the statistical probability that all those things were there? Just math tells you. This isn't a coincidence. This is a pattern. That study has actually been done. There are a couple of academics, I think in Michigan, I don't recall it precisely. This is quite recent. Did a statistical analysis of the <clears throat> corollaries between Michael Coe, who's one of the world's foremost uh, Mayan experts. And he wrote the book. It's kind of the Bible on the Maya. On the corollaries between that and the archaeological details in the Book of Mormon, and the corollaries are statistically impossible. Wow. Wow. So that's all the art. Is that all the archaeological stuff? <laughs> By no means is that all the archaeological <laughs> stuff, but uh, probably we, let, let's move on because we've hit, we've hit some big ones. I mean, cement and the time and the place it's supposed to, elephants where they're supposed to. I mean, those are. And what kills me, again, you go on Wikipedia and you look up Book of Mormon anachronisms, you'll find all these things still listed despite wow. the recent evidences. So they're just either in denial or they just are too lazy to change it. I don't, it, that's the frustrating thing about these discussions is the people, they just, they either quit the discussion or call you names and say you're hopelessly biased. And my response is, who's hopelessly biased here? You know, yeah, we're looking at evidence, right? We're 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 looking and saying, okay, if Joseph said all those things are supposed to be there, they we and should they find them. We should find and them. They if are. we find them, you have to count it as evidence for Joseph's claims and the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Let's talk about it. just a couple of other archaeological things while we're on there. <clears throat> uh, of course, he was roundly criticized for saying that ancient Americans wrote on metal plates. <laughs> they didn't have any metal, and nobody in the ancient world would waste their precious metals to ride on. That's just stupid, right? And lo and behold, they have found all over the old world, and some in the new world, writing on metal. I don't know if you've seen this photograph. I have, yep. Before. I have seen that, yep. Now you look at that and you think, and the Mormon's going to say, oh, look, yeah, it's a model of the golden plates in the stone box. Right. It's not. That's an actual archaeological discovery. The plates of Darius Persepolis, gold and silver plates are called foundation plates. And it was a common thing. When they built the palace, 
They had this foundation stone, and in it, they put these foundation plates. They were discovered in 1938, two gold and two silver plates dating from 518 B.C. in Persia. Right where they're supposed to be. Right, exactly in the time and the place. And they begin with the King Darius's genealogy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> right? <laughs> so and it now... Um, we now know of numerous examples of ancient sacred records having been buried and preserved for future times, including records written on metal and records buried in stone boxes, and numerous examples of records that were sealed, much like the gold plates uh, were sealed in the record. That's amazing, too. And, uh, and the fact that Joseph says, you know, under this stone there was a a, a box, right? A, a, yeah. A concrete made of box. Stone. Right, made of stone, excuse me. And inside were the plates. And then you go across the ocean. And what do you find? The very same thing. The very same thing. Which shows not only the the historicity of this idea of the ancients writing on plates. Right. And preserving them. What's that? And preserving them. Exactly. But the almost the very same way of preserving those records within stone boxes <laughs> i forgot to mention with the plates of darius there were also precious stones found with them and we know darius <laughs> yeah and 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 i think that's interesting because we know that darius was was somewhat sympathetic to the 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 israelites right so it's not out of the realm of possibility that he would have maybe adopted some of their customs or vice versa or vice versa. Right. You know, we, we talk about, we could, we could talk about reformed Egyptian and everybody laughs. The Israelites hated the Egyptians. They were using reformed Egyptian. Well, guess what? They were, they, it's called hieratic. And there's another form called demotic. It's Egyptian shorthand. They have found examples of a hieratic interspersed with Hebrew symbols in Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem, at the time of Lehi. Well, and, Come on. And not only that, I, I've read a little bit about both of those. Those were used in for guys who were essentially men who were merchants, right? Whether that was <laughs> olive oil, whether that was wine, whatever it was, it was used because it was so well recognized by everybody. Yep. It's, it's why the world predominantly... When it oh. comes to business, everybody speaks English, right? Because what, what, what did Lehi do for a living again? Oh, I, they yep. don't. He's yeah. a merchant. Yep, exactly. And so when when you start when you start adding this all up, and you're right, right? When you start talking about archaeology, there is very rarely anything that you can look at and be like, it's plain as day, right? Yeah. All all of these evidences. <laughs> It, to a certain extent, are circumstantial. That's yeah. what makes it history. Right, right? exactly. <clears throat> so. Now, here's probably the single greatest smoking gun that has a direct language relationship in the Book of Mormon. Before I get there, I need to preface this. The problem with finding the words and the names and the vocabulary of the Book of Mormon in ancient American culture is because it has not been a there has not been continuous habitation. What we find in Mesoamerican, uh, let's see, 
Unlike the biblical lands where many toponyms survived due to a continuity of culture, there is no reason to assume that Maya languages and Nephite languages were related. We don't know. Secondly, we find that toponyms often disappeared from one era to the next because there were these massive cultural interruptions in the history of the Maya. And in the case of the Olmec, I mean, they just, they were gone, right? Can I ask a quick question here? And I'm going to sure. show my lack of education. What's a, a toponym? A toponym, a, a name, a okay. place right. name or a person name, right? Okay. Sorry about that. The collapse of the indigenous civilizations before the conquistadors created a sharp historical discontinuity. We have the names of almost none of the classic Mayan and Olmec cities of two millennia ago, which is why they are known today under Spanish titles. Archaeologists simply don't know what many of the original names for these Mayan cities were. If archaeologists don't know the names of some cities they have discovered, how should how could we ever hope to provide English names for those cities, such as names provided in the Book of Mormon? It's another straw man. Right. Why, why haven't we found Zarahemla written on a stone somewhere? Because Zarahemla is an English interpretation of some Reformed Egyptian text. Right. I mean, it's it's an impossibility. Well, nevertheless. It, yeah, it, and I think that's the, a fool's errand. Yeah, and and the other thing I would say about you know, cause that, you're right. That's the other thing I like to latch onto is the the the, uh, the reformed Egyptian argument, right? Oh, that's my favorite one. Knock it out of the park. Everybody knows there was. Call it what you want. Yep, and 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 they say, well, why don't we find more of it in in um in the new world? And that's another straw man argument. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll let you. The I'll Mayan let... culture. Well, here's Sorensen pointed this out in terms of trying to identify Book of Mormon lands. Two primary requirements, massive populations in the millions and and uh, concrete evidence of literacy. Writing. We don't find that in South America. We don't find that on mass in North America. Thus far, the only American ancient cultures we know of that had massive populations and literacy were the Aztec and the Maya. And the Aztec occurred far too late. They uh, chronologically don't agree. To, so it leaves us with the Maya. The Maya, we know they had writing. Uh, we know that they had libraries. Libraries of stuff. What happened to those libraries? Destroyed by the conquistadors. And by the well-meaning priests who came over were destroying those writings to try to convert people to Christianity. And so those writings didn't cause them to revert back to their paganism. There were entire libraries. We know we have in the world today, there are four, exactly four Mayan books remaining. Oh. Four. That's it. And they had libraries on them. Yeah. You know? it's, it's so sad when you stop to think about that, right? Whether... It's here in the New World with the yeah. Maya or, yeah. you know, the, the library at, at Alexandria. Alexandria, that's what comes to mind. Right. I mean, it, it, it's the same pattern over and over again. And I, I think what it does is it it just creates gaps in our own history that that are nearly impossible to fill again. But the other thing I'd say about Reformed Egyptian is that, one, we know that the language was interpreted you know, it could be interpreted in Egyptian or Hebrew. 
But the other thing I'd say is there's no guarantee that that language didn't undergo changes once the Nephites got to the New World, right? The Book of Mormon says as much. <clears throat> right. Absolutely. So, so here we are to the uh, the definite, the greatest smoking gun in the Book of Mormon because it's in the old world. In Nephi, in First Nephi 16, verse 34, Nephi tells us, tells us all that he wished us to know about the place called Nahum. And it came to pass that Ishmael died and was buried in the place which was called Nahum. They didn't name it. It was a pre-existing place. And he, Ishmael died at the point when there were, if you follow, people marked the math of them fleeing Jerusalem. And it was before they had cut east across the Arabian Peninsula. So it was near the shores of the Red Sea, but on toward the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. Non-LDS archaeologists discovered an ancient city, <clears throat> and it was called Nahum. How do they know this? Because there were three ancient altars inscribed, chiseled on these blocks of stone, where the uh, letters N-H-M, because they don't use vowels in Semitic right. languages. So the wording makes it clear that Nahum was not named by Lehi's party. He was already known by that name to local people. Thus, other people were already settled in proximity to the Lehi encampment. Nahum was, or at least included, a place of burial, according to Nephi. Note that Nephi does not state that Ishmael died there, but that he was buried there. In, implying, um, I lost you, still there? Oh, there you go. That it included yeah, I, an established burial place. We get we got a we got a bit of a storm. So if we're the Sorry. That, three no. chiseled blocks of stone from a pagan temple in Yemen now provide incontrover incontrovertible evidence that in fact that name did exist in and that the area was a logical place to bury Ishmael. And that then there's this photograph of the ancient altar with the inscription Nahum, which was donated to a temple. Guess when? Six hundred BC. <laughs> Ah, uh, it's, oh. you know, anybody, I wish there was an experiment that could be done where you could take someone who's never heard of the Book of Mormon and just go around and show them all of these things and then hand them a Book of Mormon, <laughs> let them read I it. like that. And then like, oh, yeah, I, I remember seeing that, right? I remember hearing about that. <laughs> this must be a history book. Because, again, if you're batting 90%, that's a pretty darn good average, Ken. I mean, that's that's not just throwing crap against the wall to see what sticks. That and is... not only that, there were <laughs> they're bullseyes, bullseyes of stupid things. Yeah. Elephants, horses, gold plates, barley. Oh. And it's all there. Cement. I mean, <laughs> people still mock us for that in ignorance of the actual archaeological discoveries. In, in, I would say in any other discipline other than archaeology today, if you were to come out, whether it was you were trying to figure out the puzzle of the universe and you could hit 90% of what you observe <laughs> yeah. through yeah, the yeah, equation, yeah. they would be like, oh, that's golden. We're, we're good there, right? <laughs> I mean, we got a little bit to figure out, but... Yeah. But we're right there. <laughs> well, let's move on <clears throat> to the um, textual, literary, 
evidences of the Book of Mormon. And I want to start. Can, can I ask a quick question before we start? You do whatever you want. Awfully dumb here. Explain to me what chiasmus is. I'm so glad you went there. That's where I wanted to start. No, I wanted to start with names, but let's go to chiasmus. Um, chiasmus is an ancient Hebrew literary form. The ancient Hebrews were steeped in their in their poetry and how they wrote things. It was very specific and it was very specifically taught in their synagogues and in their schools. And uh, it wasn't rediscovered. Let me see here. Uh, and it's a, it's a form of parallelism. Parallelism. So let's say you have an order. You're telling a story. And in that story, you have five specific events. And you start, you tell number one, number two, third, fourth, and the fifth event. And then you reemphasize the fifth event and repeat it backwards. So you go one, two, three, four, five, then five, four, three, two, one. Okay. That is a chiasm. That's a chiastic structure. The simplest one being hickory, dickory, dock. The mouse ran up the clock. The clock started to run. The mouse came down. Hickory, dickory, dock. It's okay. just a reverse ordered parallelism, right? So can many you... people... Yes. Is there a, where, where, like in the Bible, <laughs> would you see chiasmus? Because oh, you you'll find it in the Old Testament. It's obscured because of the translation process. Because okay. the translators didn't know anything about that, and so they wouldn't keep the same words. Off the top of my head, I don't have one. Uh, I was looking at one just the other day, but uh, I don't have that on me right now. And so a lot of people criticize. Oh, people do chiasmus all the time. You know, hickory dickory dock. Shakespeare had some. But what they cannot comprehend is that the longest and most perfect chiasm known to the world today is in the Book of Alma. Really? The Book of Alma, chapter 36. Chapter 36 is 30 verses long. The entire chapter, the whole chapter, is one chiastic structure that has 17 elements that are repeated in order and gets to 17 repeats it and then says those 17 items in reverse order <laughs> chiasmus was not discovered in the book of mormon nobody knew a thing about it until the 1960s when a young missionary serving in germany by the name of john welch he and his companion were going to these Bible study with the Lutheran scholar, and the Lutheran scholar was teaching them about uh, chiasmus and that it was evidence of Hebrew writing. And these stupid missionaries, they go home and they go, I wonder if there's any in the Book of Mormon. And they found loads of them. And the one in Alma being the most extensive of them all. And in their excitement, they go in the middle of the night, they knock on this uh, Lutheran pastor's door, the scholar, and they show him. This, chias this chiasmus from the Book of Mormon, this chiasm, and he says, oh, this is a particularly beautiful example. What's it from? And he, they show it's from the Book of Mormon. He slams the door and kicks him out. Wow. wow. So in Alma chapter 36, it's one thing to talk about it. But when I finally, when 
you know, and I was like, yeah, the, the literary evidences are not as exciting and wow we as cement and elephants and that sort of thing until you see it with your own eyes, which is why the Book of Mormon was given to us. Anybody can grab it and read it for themselves. And what you will find, too, Joseph Smith was not aware of it. No, the, the verse, the versification of the Book of Mormon occurred in 1879 by Orson Pratt. And you will find that the verses do not follow the chiastic structure, meaning in 1879, Orson Pratt or anybody else knew that it was there. Right. It was there the whole time. So what I did without reading anything, I went to Alma 36 and I started at verse one and at verse 30 and began comparing. And lo and behold, it is exact. And I've marked it, those 17 elements in exact reverse order. One of the other defining purposes of the chiastic structure is that the pivotal elements, so you go up to 17 and reverse on repeating 17 again, is the key point of that structure. And it's usually revolving around God or Christ. And in Alma chapter 36, verse 17, I remembered Jesus Christ, a son of God. And that's where it reverses. In verse 18, I cried, Jesus Christ, Son of God. And then it starts reversing those elements again. The pivotal point of that chiasm in, in uh, chapter 36 is Jesus Christ. Hmm. <laughs> what a coincidence. And, and, and I have three or four or five of my favorite chiasms uh, picked out. All of them. This is the longest one you will find. It's the whole chapter. Neither Joseph Oliver Cowdery or some Pratt, nobody knew it was even even knew that it was there. Never mentioned until the 1960s. Way to go. That, that is just that's one of those things that I know as somebody who who believes this, not because first I, I received a a cerebral witness or someone convinced me you know, scholastically, but because I, I received it uh, spiritually first. But when you hear about that, it, it if you're if you're someone who believes in the restoration, that should give you enormous confidence going forward that that this is not the religion of a charismatic individual who could get people to follow him. This has some teeth. Lots of teeth. I mean, you and I were just getting started. I have to tell you a story. My father-in-law is a fundamentalist. Okay. Okay. He and I are, are friends and we love talking, but he just, he's a terminally degreed intelligent man. And I love his wisdom. He loves church history. We love talking about this. He didn't know about chiasmus. I mean, he's a true believer. Right. And I was telling him about chiasmus and he, his doctorate degree is in uh, literature. So he appreciates the written word. When he when I was telling him about this and I showed him one, he just burst out and he doesn't do this. He says, the Book of Mormon is true, <laughs> which, which he always knew. But it's like you and me, when we see these things with our own eyes, it's reaffirmed to us that, oh, my gosh, Joseph Smith, he really did translate this. And he wasn't it wasn't a loose translation. A loose translation would not have provided a word-for-word chiastic structure. Those 17 elements are repeated identically, word-for-word, in reverse order. And and let's, 
here's the other thing that I would say here too, Ken. Here's a picture of us. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Here here's the other thing I'm gonna say. For those that are, are tend to be the, the progressive Mormons, right? Those who yeah. want to believe that maybe the Book of Mormon wasn't literal or there weren't really plagues. Right. right. And I get they're it. not going to get chiasmus through an, ins- <laughs> an inspirational idea. Right? You're going to get chiasmus yeah. by actually translating something. You know, you could get a chiasmus with two elements accidentally. Sure. But not 36. Not like 36. Not 34. Versus, yeah, right. Se- 17 elements in reverse with 17, 34 total elements. The longest chiasm known to the world. And it's perfect. And it, how and it pivots on Jesus Christ. That's that is not an accident. That cannot be an accident. No, and 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 for those who say, well, maybe Joseph read some Shakespeare or something like that. I'm like, have you read Joseph Smith? Have you listened <laughs> to what he said? These these are not people who are hanging out, you know, on the frontier of America, going, you know, what go well right now? A little Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> That's not happening. They're well, worried I- about feeding themselves right so this yeah. idea that joseph's got time just to hang out and read shakespeare it's not happening and chiasmus doesn't really from what i understand the western mind doesn't understand this till the early 20th century so Chias- chiasmus is a form of what is uh, what people refer to as hebrisms hebrew uh literary mannerisms that are unique to that culture uh an article that was written in 2002 by Donald Perry, great LDS scholar, uh, goes through uh, this multi-page article uh, detailing 17 Hebrisms, all present within the Book of Mormon. Uh, We'll go through some of those in a minute, but my favorite thing, one of my favorite literary evidences are the names in the Book of Mormon. Crazy names. Most of which you won't find anywhere else. Right. Right. Uh, Hugh Nibley was writing, this is in the Collective Works of Hugh Nibley, Volume 6. He says, recently there have been discovered lists of the names of prisoners that Nebuchadnezzar brought back to Babylon from him, uh, with him from his great expedition into Syria and Palestine. So these are Hebrew slaves. And they have lists of their names. Wow. What are they? These represent a good cross-section of proper names prevailing in those lands in the days of Lehi. And among them is a respectable proportion of Egyptian names. What? Why did the Hebrews have Egyptian names? Which is what the Book of Mormon would lead us to expect. Why? Also in the list are Philistine, Phoenician, Elamite, Median, Persian, Greek, and Lydian names. All the sweepings of a campaign into Lehi's country. According to D.W. Thomas, this list shows that it was popular at the time, Lehi's time, to name children after Egyptian hero kings of the past. A surprisingly large number of the non-Hebraic Nephite names are of this class. Thus, the name Aha, which a Nephite general bestowed on his son, means warrior in the Mm. Egyptian. And it was born by the legendary first hero king of Egypt. Himni, Korahor, Panki, Pakumini, Sam, Zeezrom, Ham, 
Monty, Nephi, Nephi, and Zenoch are all Egyptian hero names. Wow. All attested in ancient Egypt. And it goes on. I'll give you some specifics. But he concludes. I'll give you his conclusion. He said, Joseph Smith knew a number. We're talking hundreds of names. There are over 300 proper names in the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith knew a number of typically Egyptian names. Queer sounding words in no way resembling Hebrew or any other language known to the world at Joseph Smith's time. It is no small feat simply to have picked a lot of strange and original names out of the air. But what do we say of the man who is able to pick the right ones? What does he mean by that? We've been learning that the Book of Mormon names are also highly symbolic. They're representative. They actually refer to the role of the Book of Mormon character, which is weird. How would how making up names but have them in the right context is an impossibility? Wow, hundreds of times, right? We talked about aha. Um, how about Ammon, which would be Egyptian Ammon? Um, in the Book of Mormon, it's the most common name in the Book of Mormon in the old world. Um, Amon, Amun is the commonest name in the Egyptian empire. The great universal god of the empire. The temples are named the temple of Amun. Coincidence. Amonaiha, name of a country and city. In the old world, the prince of uh, Beirut under Egyptian rule. The above might stand the same relationship to this name. Um, what are my, some of my favorites? Him, brother of the earlier Ammon. Him in the old world means servant, specifically of Amon. Hmm. Ham was a servant of Ham, so they are related. Uh, Himni, a son of King Messiah. HMN in the old world is the name of the Egyptian hawk god, symbol of the emperor. And it goes, he goes on for three pages with this stuff. Wow. So even the names. Wow, what a genius he was. Knowing all about these ancient Egyptian connections. Yeah, and and it, it fits perfectly within the time that Lehi would be coming or, or that Lehi would be in, in the Holy Land, right? In, yeah, in exactly. Area. Because Egypt was a massive center of commerce. Um, it, was, it was pivotal during those times. Here's something else that I recently learned about the names. Of all the names of persons mentioned in the Old Testament, none of them are surnames. Biblical characters, whether notable or not, were known by one name only. What do we find in the Book of Mormon? The exact same thing. They're known by one name. And those names, as translated into the English language, neither use the letters Q, X, or W, and they never begin with the letter F. Yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking like, right now. Foroni about... or <laughs> yeah. right. we don't see a foreman. We don't see that. So there's there in the Bible, no QX, no Q, no X, no W, or no F. It's exactly the same for the book wow. of Mormon. Yeah, I as you said that I was, just, I was just sitting here thinking, okay, can no, no, Alma, no, Mormon, Mormon, no. no. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, out of no. 300 out of 337 proper names in the Book of Mormon. Not one of them use Q, X, W, or F, or start with F. Boy, he was a good guesser, wasn't he? 
Well, and the, you know, this has been, I mean, this is so fun for me to go over these again because, you know, you forget stuff, but, you know, well, here's one of my favorites. <clears throat> uh, and it came to pass. Occurs in uh, the Book of Mormon. A lot. 1,279. 1, 1,297 times. Mark Twain joked, he said, if Joseph Smith had left out the many instances of and it came to pass from the Book of Mormon, the book would have only been a pamphlet. That's what Mark Twain said. (laughs) And people laugh about that. But what they do not know is that ancient writing, and this is prior to the invention of the press, there were no there was no punctuation they didn't punctuation was right. a development of the modern printing press and so how did they transition from one idea to the next without a period or something like that let me guess it came to pass right or and so it happened or and then right those transition words and there's a very specific word for that <clears throat> in uh in the ancient texts. So what you will find. Let's see. In the Hebrew Bible, which we would expect to have the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it came to pass is the translation of a Hebrew expression used frequently in scriptural histories and chronologies and far less frequently in poetry. So it's in histories and chronologies because they're showing um, a progression of events which you would have to say and next and then and it came to pass right so not in poetry not prophecies or direct speech in the hebrew form uh, the expression is found in the hebrew bible 1200 times in the hebrew form in the hebrew it was translated in the king james version and as and it came to pass only about 727 times King James translators probably thought the expression was redundant and cumbersome, which would explain why they often translated it as, and it became, or and it was, or just and. On a number of occasions, they simply ignored the expression altogether. But in the Old Testament, it is as frequent, 1,200 times, as the Book of Mormon. Wow. 1,300 times. Wow. Uh, and, and now, similar to Old Testament usage, the phrase, and it came to pass, is not found in the Book of Mormon when there are psalms, lamentations, proverbs, which are all poetic forms, blessing, curses, prayers, speeches, or dialogues, where the first person is speaking. Only when it's talking about histories and chronologies is Anticamp Pass used in the Book of Mormon, identical to its usage in the Old Testament. Joseph Smith was a blinking genius. Yeah. Here's the other thing. I, I did a, I studied my own on it. And in the Old Testament, it came to pass 727 of them that exist in English. It came to pass occurs once every three pages. The New Testament's once every six pages. And the Pearl of Great Price, which is a more ancient, once every page. In the Pist of Sophia that we discussed, it averages once every page. Wow. Book of Mormon, it's two and a half times every page. 
the closer a text is historically to ancient Egypt, the more frequent is the use of it came to pass. So let me ask and you. You won't find it in the Doctrine and Covenants or the teachings of Prophet mm-hmm. Joseph Smith. It wasn't something that he was just throwing in to make it sound special. Right, right. He translated directly. Let, let, let me ask you this about the Apocrypha in particular, um, specifically those that came during the time of Christ. Now, Christ was speaking Aramaic, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yeah. We find that in the Pistis Sophia. So what that was after the time of, of Christ, right? That well, that the Pistis written. Sophia claims that it was Jesus Christ speaking. Right. The the manuscript that we have dates to the first, second century. So it's really close. Yeah. It was written it was written in Coptic. Okay. So which is, is which is a Egyptian, right? Or, it, or it, it is related to Egyptian. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Nope. That that all ties. It all ties and together. It came to pass. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's that's just fun. Let me see a, a couple of the other Hebrisms that I liked. Well, which is if you read the Book of Mormon, you go, "This is hard to read," and it's hard to read out loud because it's not English, right? Reading English, no. word, but it's. Uh, the compound prepositions that we read, which <clears throat> seem kind of cumbersome, like um, give me an example: "Turn thee behind me," or <clears throat> where was it? Insomuch that they did fall back from before them. Compound prepositions: back from before. Do you see those all over? And that's an evidence. That's a Hebrewism. So just even little things like that are evidence that he was not making it up. He wasn't just trying to sound like he was King Jamesing it. You know. <clears throat> so I, it is extraordinary to say the so, least. So so let me ask you this: while we're talking about <laughs> linguistics, is there anything that we can link to either? The heartland or the, the the Mesoamerican model that shows any sort of language that those cultures would have had that would have mimicked these these Hebrew roots. Two As things a, come to mind. Okay, there is a Mayan glyph, which means "and it came to pass." Wow. Um, I think most significantly, <clears throat> an LDS linguist, ancient linguist has done a study comparing Hebrew to the ancient Uto-Aztecan languages and has found significant corollaries between those languages. Wow. Significant. And I was just listening to a podcast that Jonathan Neville was being interviewed. And apparently he's done the same with ancient Native American Northeastern tribes and found similar corollaries. Yeah, I was going to say, I know the chair. That that one hasn't been published yet. I, I know, so I have I have a friend that I surveyed with, who was was uh, sub, substantial had a substantial lineage within uh, the Cherokee Nation. Yeah, and uh, there there's a group of Cherokees that actually talk about, you know, that their forefathers came from across the sea, and. Um, when they analyzed their language, there was a bunch of Hebrew, Hebrew, I can't pronounce it, Ken, you're going to have to help me. Uh, 
Hebrewisms within Hebrewisms, yes, with, within their language. Oh yeah, and it's interesting that they're finding that not just in Central America but in in North America as well. I find it yeah. fascinating that we can see those ties all the way through. I was going to read this to you. <clears throat> as Stubbs began to study Udo Aztecan languages, he noticed a lot of similarities to the Semitic languages he had studied previously. In the early stages, he identified, he identified several hundred potential cognates, words that have the same linguistic origin between uh, Hebrew and Udo Aztecan. Several hundred. As he continued his studies, the list expanded to over a thousand potential connections, a thousand. And he discovered links to Egyptian as well. Ooh. Finally, after three decades of research, he published a comprehensive study documenting 1,528 total connections between Udo Aztecan and Semitic or Egyptian languages. That's, that's amazing. I mean, just the fact that you have the crossover with the language is just nuts. And yeah. and I would submit that, you know, I, I think you can see, you can, you can even see a little bit of, of um, Egyptian uh, influence in, in the architecture. If you look at the pyramids in South oh, America, yeah, I mean, it, it granted they're step pyramids, but it's still a pyramid, right? I well, mean, the, the first Egyptian pyramids were step pyramids. Right, right, absolutely. <clears throat> and so the, the fact that we're seeing all of this and the fact that we now, because I think for a lot of, of uh, Mormons, we have this idea that that Lehi came out of just this Hebrew bubble, right? That he didn't, we shouldn't expect to see Egyptian things with the, with the exception of Reformed Egyptian but yeah. once you understand who Lehi was, what his profession was, he's going to be exposed to a lot of Egyptian things, right? And those would be passed on to his kids, right? I can imagine Nephi well, writing with Lehi on, on those expeditions in, in trading and in, in being a merchant. And so when they come here, we would expect to see the same stuff. Well, initially we thought that... <clears throat> The Hebrews are trying to keep themselves separate, and they would never use Egyptian names, right? Until these prisoner lists from Nebuchadnezzar show up, right. we find out that that's absolutely false. Yep, they were naming their children after Egyptian heroes. It was part of their; it had become part of their tradition. Not surprisingly, um, <clears throat> let's transition into geographical evidence. Ooh, there we go. The uh, <clears throat> I want to save the geological evidences. For last, <clears throat> um, David Palmer put together a list of 10 essential ge geography features from the Book of Mormon. Okay. And then uh, uh, 15, and I added a 16th, cultural features that the Book of Mormon specifically names. So if we're looking at a Book of Mormon land potential, it has to fit all uh 26 of these parameters right the book of mormon has over 600 specific geographical references 600 and you had the geological references we'll get to that <clears throat> so to find so 
well, you know, a critic would say, well, there you go. Joseph Smith painted himself into a corner. There isn't any place that's going to fit all of that stuff, except that there is. So the 10 geographic, geographical features, a narrow neck, an isthmus, Nephite, Lamanite lands, occupied at least three times as much as the West coastline. So the Western coastline was three times bigger than the East coastline. And I have the scriptural references. City of Nephi was in a highland valley. Zarahemla would be in a river basin down from uh, uh, Nephi. The river Sidon flows northward through Zarahemla, emptying into the East Sea. Um, the waters of Mormon, a highland lake of significant size. Zarahemla would be surrounded by Nephite fortifications. The Nephite city was the Neph, uh, the city of Nephi was three weeks travel south from Zarahemla and near the waters of Mormon. The city of Bountiful would be north of Zarahemla and near the narrow neck of land. It was about five days travel from Moroni and guarded the route to the land northward. And Cumorah was near the eastern sea, not far from Bountiful, north of the narrow neck of land. That's a lot to keep yep. in mind, right? Yep. Cultural features that had to be cities, large cities, towers, agriculture, metallurgy, formal political city-states, organized religion, idolatry, crafts, trade, writing, weaponry, astronomy, calendar systems, cement, wheels. Mm. They did have wheels. We have toys that exist from that era that are have wheels. Wow. And of course, if they had wooden wheels, those would all be gone. And the 16th, I add, are two distinct, two different ancient civilizations that overlap chronologically, an older civilization dating from before 600 BC, that, that, and they had contact at the end of the older civilization and the new civilization, and that they, were, they overlapped geographically. Hmm. So the older civilization was in the land northward, and to the south would be the newer civilization. Is there any place in the Western Hemisphere that satisfies all of those requirements? Yes. Yes, there is. Where is it? <laughs> Mesoamerica. So the, the Sorensen model, which holds up. Sorensen knew the Book of Mormon, the geographical references, better than anybody who's ever lived. They say he inhaled the Book of Mormon. He right. knew him by heart. And he, and he developed the theoretical map just based on Book of Mormon descriptions. And he compared the theoretical map to the actual maps. And lo and behold, there it is. And we find, we find ancient ruins corresponding with those locations. Yeah. And, and the Olmecs, which are, would be that ancient civil, civilization. Yes. Yeah. That they were significantly older. And, much much older yeah and and they were they were northward now i'll never say on this podcast where my allegiance lies yeah but for my um heartland brethren let me ask you this. <laughs> how do you square that with what joseph said and it's found in church history i can't remember which volume where yeah. he writes that letter back to emma as they're on uh, Zion's camp that March, yeah. and he, he yeah. tells her, "I'm wandering across the plains of the Nephites, yeah, seeing their bones strewn across the plains." How does that square with with a, a Mesoamerican model? Then, 
um, the Book of Mormon is they didn't have uh, Google Maps. Right. They didn't have drones. They didn't. The Book of Mormon was was a record of the family of a family of people that existed in a much much larger okay. sense. Right. They could not have known anything about Native Americans in Alaska or Native Americans in Chile. Right. And here's what we know. Native Americans have populated this entire continent for millennia. And the other thing we know, the vast majority of them have the same DNA inheritance. Asian. Right. Asian DNA. From Alaska to Chile. All Asians with very few very interesting exceptions. So, and then Lehi and his family, by the way, they were not Jewish. They were from the tribe of Manasseh. That's the first straw man that is dis- dis- dispelled. They And the other false assumption that uh, Latter-day Saints have is that all these Jaredites all died and there were none left. The Jaredite record was just as limited. They had the, uh, the, uh, the, the two warring factions at the end that killed exterminated each other but that was in the area of the olmec what what i'm believing in others and so they could not possibly take into account the colonization i mean they they spread throughout the land for how long how long were the jaredites in the new world and let's just assume for the sake of discussion when they got here which is right after the flood and let's presume that the flood was global, right? so it had swept the American continent clean, which is why I believe the Jaredites, when they brought their barges, they had to bring bees. They had to bring fish. Because they had to, yeah, they all had of that to, stuff would have been yeah. gone, right? In any case, so they get here, this blank slate, and they spread, and we can presume that they, well, I will presume that uh, they landed in the center of Olmec culture, which was near Veracruz, southern Mexico, in the curve of the Gulf, right? And right. spread out. And clearly, they spread throughout North and South America, from Alaska to Chile. Okay. Because that DNA is all throughout the Americas, right? And they had uh, almost 2,000 years to do it. Now, you can can you tell me that Ether was aware of all of those populations? Even the Book, book of Mormon doesn't know what happened to Hagoth. Right, you know, and the the two or three ships and expeditions that took off and went, heaven knows where. Right, they don't right. know that. Neither the Book of Ether nor the Nephite record can possibly account for all of these settlements and where these people spread to. They don't know that. And uh, my personal belief is that there were descendants of Lamanites, and potentially of Nephites that had gone Hagoth for uh, one example, who went into the North countries, who went beyond uh, the land northward. uh, And some have called this the hinterland idea because we know there were native Americans in North America. We know there were Mm -hmm. there, you know, obviously they were there when the Europeans arrived and we know that they were there even before that long before that. So um, I don't doubt at all that there were descendants of Lamanites and Nephites. What Joseph Smith's letter and what his teachings about Zelf and Zarahemla do not identify is exactly who he was. 
exactly what he was doing there or exactly when it was. We don't know any of that. Right. So I to to pin an entire geographic model on a very um, ambiguous, although fascinating statement of Joseph Smith, I, I don't think serves us well. Here's my other point. I mean, and I have a list of insurmountable geographic problems, insurmountable problems with the Heartland model. You just, you can't get around it. There's no fixing it. Now, on the heels of that, every evidence we could possibly hope for exists in Mesoamerica. Everything. Arguably 90 to 100% of what the book of right. mentions. It's already there. Right. Why are we reluctant to go there? One of the issues is Camorra. Right? Right. And uh, the uh, it's part of um, the traditions of men that have crept in to uh, LDS culture. Joseph Smith never referred to the Hill Camorra as Camorra until the end of his life. And he probably just, he just called it that, right? Um, and we already know that there's nothing in that hill. I mean, you know, it's a drumlin hill. It's a pile right. of gravel pushed up by gla glaciers. There's nothing right. there. It's, it's a dead end. Besides which, in Mormon chapter 6, verse 6, Mormon says, I'm getting old. I'm going to take all these records, all of them, and I'm going to hide them up in Camorra, which was the place of the, uh, of the last great battle. Right. And he said, I'm going to hide them all up so that Lamanites don't get them, except for these plates, these few plates, which I'm going to give to Moroni. And then he left. Mormon dies, and Moroni takes those plates and leaves, and he wanders around for 36 years by himself, fleeing, because the Lamanites are still hunting. Some of them escaped south or were hunted down. Moroni doesn't say where he went. But for 36 years, he took these little plates. Where could he have gone in 36 years? All over. All, he could have all gone over. anywhere. And where did he go ultimately? To the place God knew Joseph Smith would be 1,400 years later. Right. 1,500, yeah, 1,400 years later. And we know that that's possible because it has been done. Uh, so Mesoamericanists think that the Camorra, where all the records are, are the Tuxtla Mountains in southern Mexico. Okay. Near, near Veracruz. Gotcha. Which was which was the Hilrama, the great and last battle of the of, of the Jaredites as well. Ironic that those two cultures should meet their demise in the same place. And guess what? That is the heart of Olmec civilization. Right. And it would and be the land northward for the Mayans. Do we do we find um like massive amounts of arrowheads or spears around that area that would lend itself to this idea of a massive battle? That I I can't address directly. We do know that Mayan culture is full of weaponry. Right. Swords and scimitars, curved swords. They had armor. Now, it's not like we imagine the Knights of the Round Table has. Sure. sure. They, had obsidian, they had obsidian wep weapons, which were sharper than steel. Yep. And that could be stained with blood. Right. Like the anti-need, like, you know, our swords are stained with blood, right? Right. How, how do you stain, how do you stain steel? You don't. In any case, they had curved swords and they, they had all those things and people will, will take issue. I mean, then they had, 
So, but most of their weaponry was not what we imagined it was most likely. Right. But yes, they had loads of yeah, loads of evidence and uh, evidence of extermin warfare of extermination. It was happening there sure. a lot. Loads of evidence for it. So I let me there's the list of insurmountable geographical problems that the Heartlanders have to address. Um, Hagoth cannot, as it's claimed, navigate from the Great Lakes to the ocean. That's where they think Hagoth went. Well, Hagoth, he departed from the western shore. And there was no way to traverse the Great Lakes then. Right? We didn't have that. That was not a possibility. Two, the Mississippi River, which they say is the Sidon, flows north to south. It's the opposite direction. It's the Sidon River flows. The Sidon River should empty into the seas, which are the Great Lakes and the Heartland Model, but it flows to the Gulf of Mexico, away from the seas. The Heartland Model uses the Ohio River as the geographic feature separating the land of Nephi from the land of Zarahemla, while the Book of Mormon indicates that that separating feature was a narrow strip of wilderness, not a river. The Heartland Model has the land bountiful southeast of Zarahemla, the Book of Mormon has it northward. Uh, the land of the first inheritance should be on the West Sea, west from the land of Nephi. The Heartland model places it south of the land of Nephi on the Gulf of Mexico. That is not even one of the seasons. Uh, and that the hill Cumorah is south of the narrow neck of land, as they say in the Heartland model, when the Book of Mormon says that the Hill Cumorah is north of the Isthmus of the Narrow Neck of Land. There are, um, those are some pretty significant issues. The, um, the Heartland model does not match the known archaeology, the Hopewell area uh, that he wishes to make into the Nephites. The, the chronology of that and the archaeological and cultural issues don't line up with Certainly not as well as the Mayan. By the way, when we talk about the Mayan, we have to recognize that the Mayan was this massive culture. Sure. And that the Book of Mormon peoples were a subset of that much larger culture, which explains a lot of things. How yeah. the Lamanites were constantly outnumbering the Nephites. Yeah. Because the Lamanites were recruiting from the native populations that had been there all along. It also explains uh, how uh, skin tones could change. Sure. If Lame and Lemuel were intermarrying outside of the Hebrew tradition, they were intermarrying with the natives who were the native Asians. Right. Would take on a darker hue within a generation. Right. I mean, what's not a big deal, but it's a very interesting, very interesting problem. It supports the text. Yeah. So, so and nobody knows for sure. And right. it would be a delightful surprise to find some, you know, Nephi was here written on some inscription up by Palmyra. That would be cool. But, <laughs> but for now, I mean, the, the evidence, unquestionably, the archaeological, cultural, textual evidence favors the Mesoamerican civilizations. It's all there and it's been there the whole time. And what's cool is that Joseph Smith and his people and his friends, they didn't know a darn thing. Nobody knew anything about my right. Culture. Until the Stevens account uh, in 1841, which when it was when Joseph Smith read it, he goes, "Man, this could be the Book of Mormon stuff." 
he was very excited about that. But that was the first real scholarly type reference to uh, Mayan Mesoamerican culture. Hmm. Now, do you have time for this? Dude, I, we, we got all the time in the world, Ken. The geological, and this is a new approach, geological evidences for the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Mormon, in Third Nephi, chapters 8 and then chapter 10 specifically, it describes very specific geological events that destroyed these cities. Simultaneous volcanic eruptions and earthquakes in the first half of the century and submerged ruins. If that happened at 30 AD, there should be geological evidence of volcanic eruptions sure. and destroyed cities and, and tsunami and earthquake events and uh, remains of those cities that, uh, that exist. It just so happens, uh, this, is, this has to be one of my favorite uh, Book of Mormon archaeological treatments. It's called uh, The Geology of the Book of Mormon, written by Jerry Grover, who is a professional geologist. I know who He's, Jerry Grover is. Do I you? I is do. that a good I, thing? It's a very good thing. I like I've never, I've never met him, right? When I first saw this book, I'm like, oh, I have to have this. And I went on to Amazon to buy a copy. He had one used copy for like $400. Like, well, I'm never going to own that. And then I realized what Jerry has done, he's made it free. You go to his website and download it for free, full yep. color PDF. So here's my copy, all printed out and marked up. <coughs> nice. It is amazing. Amazing. So what he did, he used a just because it was the most commonly academically accepted model, he took the Sorensen model, the Mesoamerican model, and compared it against known geologic events. And this is a professional job, and it's pretty technical. Right. But he starts with the des describing the destruction of these 17 cities. Zarahemla burned with fire. Moroni caused to be sunk in the depths of the sea. Moroni was a uh, an establishment along the sh the eastern shore would have been a tsunami. Is right. there a fault line that runs along there that would have caused that slip fault to cause a tsunami? Ding dong, yes! <laughs> that occurred simultaneously with a volcanic eruption to the north in 30 AD. He identifies the volcano. Really? Yes, yes, yes. We'll go on. A Morona I have covered with earth was buried by some slide last night. Gilgal I have caused to be sunk and the inhabitants buried in the depths of the earth. Okay, let's see. Now, how do we know all this? Again, they didn't have Google Maps. They didn't have news or wireless, anything. In 3rd Nephi 10, it's Jesus who's telling them what has happened. Right. He's recounting what what is, what, what's what what what's Mokum and Jerusalem. I have caused uh, waters have I caused to come up in the stead thereof. And we know that those are all on the shores of the waters of Mormon, which we've already talked. That's, that's my favorite one, Lake Atitlan. I have a friend who was raised in Guatemala, and he used to swim in that lake all the time. Really? Yeah, the waters of Mormon. And yeah, beneath the waves is this ancient Mayan city called Samuyab or something like that. City of Gariambi and Gariyama, Jacob, I have caused to be sunk. 
made the hills and valleys and the places thereof. Jacob Ugoth to be burned with fire. City of Laman, Josh, Gad have caused to be burned with fire. I did say, I did send down fire and destroy them. That's a very specific fire. Yeah, it is. Right? So with his lens, his geographic, his geological lens, he identified what would cause these things, geological events. Most of them would be volcanic in nature and earthquakes. And the whole, all these cities were in the land northward, except for Jerusalem, Mokum, and Onaiha, which were on the waters of Mormon. And the uh, Lake Atitlan does not have an outlet. Okay. So if, all right. So if the waters rise, you're in big trouble because it doesn't go anywhere. It's one of the deepest lake in Guatemala or something like that. So let me cut to the chase here. Uh, he identifies and he has pictures and photographs of everything here. Whose fault segment satisfies all of the necessary conditions given in the Book of Mormon as the primary earthquake fault system. And he has a photograph of it. It runs right along the Veracruz era of the Gulf of Mexico. Part of it on land and part of it in the Gulf itself. Um, it's, it is a strike-slip fault which typically generates surface ruptures, fractures, and subsidence, meaning the so landmass. Yeah. It is located in the land northward where the worst damage occurred Part of the fault segment is in the land southward and it could cause damage in the land southward. It is located on an adjacent, on and adjacent to the coastal plains. It occurs in areas that had significant population at the time. Uh, the Veracruz fault system also satisfies most of the prefer preferential conditions. It has a major volcano sitting directly on the fault system, the volcano San Martin. It occurs within parts of the land bountiful. Part of the fault system sits under the water in the Gulf of Mexico and could potentially generate tsunami. It possibly could cause effects triggering subsidence in the city of Moroni. There are five, there are uh, major rivers and some lakes and lagoons on or adjacent to the fault, which could quickly fill areas of subsidence. It's a beautiful fit. And, and, he, and you can tell geological studies when those volcanoes erupted. And the San Martin erupted around 30 AD. Wow. With significant volcanic um, fallout that we learned from Mount St. Helens, it would bury anything within a 30-mile radius or something like that. Just the pyroclastic flow. Exactly, the pyroclastic flow. Um, Moroni, <clears throat> the city of Moroni, in the, in the, uh, and he has pictures of the maps here. Does not sit with the does not sit within the anticipated area of direct earthquake subsidence, but is located in an area of soils susceptible to earthquake amplification of 1.6 points on the Mercalli intensity scale. Being 43 kilometers from the intensity level eight area, would put it in the intensity level seven area, and by addition to the amplification factor, would be 8.6. Because of the susceptible soils, liquefaction could also be a contributing factor to the subsidence. Anyway. Wow. So, so he counts for Moroni being swept out. Um, and then Jerusalem sinking. Like, uh, that, I just love that. If you look up, um, there's a wonderful um, advertisement for, um, for people visiting Guatemala. 
and it shows scuba divers swimming around in the sunken Mayan ruin in Lake Atitlan. <laughs> wow. Which I just, I think is so cool. Oh, it'd be so um, interesting to get down there and see what kind of artifacts are down there. Yeah. Burned cities. Uh, these would be within, how does he put it? Um, Anyway, he shows a map, and all of these cities be, would be within the area of the iconoclastic flow of the San Martin eruption. Then we get to the city of Bountiful, where the temple was. And people gathered at Bountiful. Bountiful did not suffer the destruction right. that was caused in these other areas. But they could see from the temple of Bountiful, across the river, great destruction and upheaval. He's found that place. The temple in the land of Bountiful is not noteworthy because of the description of its destruction, but it's noteworthy because it was apparently not destroyed. It was also situated in a geographic position such that the people were observing the great and marvelous change that had taken place nearby. The locale also contained uh, or was immediately adjacent to a much larger population. Uh, just by word of mouth, 25 people hundred gathered, 2,500 people gathered. The temple was also adjacent to some type body of water, 3 Nephi 1910. Um, the Sorensen model identifies the city of Bountiful as being in the area of the current city of Tonala, which is located on the west bank of the Tonala River prior to its discharging into the Gulf of Mexico. So it was coastal. Uh, this location does lie within the Mercalli Zone 8 area of the San Martin. However, it is located on a stable bedrock. Really? So Bountiful was on stable bedrock consisting of conglomerate sandstone and silt, silt formations, which may have dampened surface oscillations, somewhat limiting the earthquake damage. Importantly, directly across the river from Bountiful is an entirely different seismic situation as the soils and sediments are marsh deposits and are extremely susceptible to amplified ground shaking and potential liquefaction. So he even explains why Battles preserved in the adjacent places weren't. So, wow. I love this approach. <laughs> I mean, couldn't become more scientific in regard to the geology. Right. And he, and he matches it up to specific Book of Mormon cities and sites. Now, the majority of them that were buried near San Martin in the land, northward, land northward, we would have to dig those out of many, many meters of iconoclastic. Did I say that right? Not iconoclastic. Yeah, iconoclastic flow. Yeah, periclastic flow. Yeah. So he concludes, says the Sorensen Mesoamerican geographic model is accurately supported by the non-geological data, which is very specific. The cities that were burned, the cities that were submerged, the cities that were swept out to sea, uh, the cities that were spared, all fit. How... I mean, the fact that it would fit the geographical requirements, the cultural requirements, and the geological requirements is mind-boggling. Right. So, but it takes a lot of takes a lot of putting that stuff together to get there. But so let, let anyway. me ask you this, Ken: Are you aware of any oral tradition that the Maya might have about that time of destruction? Right. I mean, this is the kind of thing that should leave societal scars. Right. Um, I don't. Okay. Uh, there are some, but once again, the problem is 
it's an oral tradition that would be 2,000 years old and that was disrupted culturally by right. the conquistadors and others who came in and basically destroyed their culture. Right. They, they, they intentionally erased yeah. the memory of the Mayan culture because it was by that time, at least pagan. Right. And well, during the time of the Nephites, all the surrounding, they were all pagan. Right. Yeah. But, hmm. Okay. So we've covered archeological, linguistic, geographical, geological. You said there was one more. Which one is that one? I, I think we got them all, sadly. Let me see. So okay. we could go into the well, geographical, geological, cultural, linguistic, and archaeological. Okay, we, we did cover cultural then. Yeah. All right, we did cover them all. Dude, this has been so fascinating. And and again, I don't care which model somebody espouses, right? As long as they're a believer in the Book of Mormon, we can argue about this amongst ourselves. All oh, day. it's fun. I have friends who are diehard Heartlanders, and we just get together and we laugh. We yeah. have the best time, and we don't pull punches. We hit, but we it, it make you know what it does? It causes each of us to go back to the yep. source. Yep, absolutely. And and so there, there's there's two forms to this debate, right? One is. <clears throat> Um, the in-house argument, right? Where we're like, no, it happened here. No, it happened here. That's cool, right? Because that's steel sharpening steel. But I think that in, in having these conversations, the other thing it can do is bolster this idea that, no, no, there's history here. There, there is scientific, scientific provable history that lends credence and i would say pretty much a level of certainty that the book of mormon is a historical document as well as a spiritual text yeah well that's that's where i'm at and and once we get to that point we can have our disagreement you know people can have their disagreements all day long about where it took place i it's it's no fun for me to talk with people who I agree with about everything. No, <laughs> what no, do you learn? You know the process, no. right? And, and what I wanted to, but I was listening to uh, Jonathan Neville's interview. He said that he was a Mesoamericanist for thirty years, and he said, "And I made a mistake, and I'm a heartlander." I wanted him to go on because he's no dummy, right? He's very well read. I want to know what flipped him, uh, and he kind of led on. He says he holds. Uh, the highest importance what joseph smith said right right and of course the issue with that is much of what he said is secondhand through others like the whole zion's camp and the zelf and i mean he wrote the letter to his wife but there are a lot of things that he didn't say right for Rudolf and others inserted their own uh, uh and, and as a practicing attorney they should know that people do that yeah not intentionally they just do but right Right. Well, and the other thing, it the Heartland model appeals to Americans. You know, sure. The Promised Land is USA. Of course, the Mexicans will say the Promised Land is Mexico. The Peruvians will say the Promised Land is Peru. Right. But the fact is, they all, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and others, believe that the Promised Land was the American hemisphere. Right. It was hemisphere. It wasn't a nation per se. 
Right. Exactly. Brigham Young and others, they they had they believe in the hemispheric model. Right. I mean, that's all of us when we first read it. Ah, Panama is the nail neck of land. Right. Yeah. The land no. southward of South America, the land of North America. But that's just completely implausible. I guess the main thing that I want people to take away from from this episode is that not only should you expect to find significant evidences of the Book of Mormon, there are historical evidences of the Book of Mormon that are substantial. And as time goes along, we seem to to be hitting more and more of those bullseyes. Bullseye. We are. We are. And, and as time goes along, I I think we're going to come to a point to where there's going to have to be some sort of reckoning where where the archaeologists are going to be forced to take a look at this new information and and think about things in a much more open way. I maybe I'm just a pessimist, but I don't believe that's ever going to happen before Christ comes. You know, I I have enough friends from my time back east because of all the work I did with some archaeologists that I have hope. I think the new generation coming up is is understanding that there are some significant holes that need to be filled in. Now, how they fill that in, I don't know. Well, you and I know. I mean, and I have friends that are on the opposite side of Ireland, as I am in many respects. We have read the same stuff. Right. We have, we know the same data and yet they will interpret that data to fit what they want to believe as I will fit it. And now, you know, there are any number of ways to look at it, but you can't deny that 90% of the Book of Mormon claims are now been verified. Right. Come on. Absolutely. Well, you know, and as I mentioned this in a previous interview with you, a friend says, well, so he had, uh, um, uh, so he had help from the other side. How do we know it wasn't the devil? I mean, well, you know, when they're making that argument, they, <laughs> they can no longer argue against Joseph Smith was doing supernatural things. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that resulted in all of these wicked Mormons destroying the world. Right. Right. Having families and yeah. <laughs> How horrible, horrible things. <laughs> Helping people and yes. trying to be yeah. healthy and be nice and do good. That's yep. just terrible. That's horrible. Yeah. Horrible. Well, Ken, dude, it's always good. Thank you so much. And, uh, dude, I'm looking forward to the next time. <laughs> yeah, what then? Whoa. Where... Anything anything you want. Like I tell everybody, once you've been on here once, you got a standing invitation, my friend. <laughs> well, I'm game. I'm game. Anytime you're interested. I, I don't know where. We, I mean, we could go any direction we wanted, but. We can. Well, this was this was so fun. I'm so glad we got to do this. Absolutely, absolutely. I always enjoy our conversations, and I always, always, always look forward to them. So, dude, you're awesome. I love you, and I appreciate you. Thanks, my friend. Till next All time. Right. All right, bye, everybody. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.